Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Stephen Clapham. Steve is the founder of Behind the Balance Sheet. Following a 25-year career as an investment analyst, Steve decided to put that experience to good use and train the next generation, or sometimes the current generation, of investment analysts. Steve's experience includes working on the sell side for a number of investment banks and on the buy side as a partner of not one but two multi-billion dollar firms. He has won awards like the prestigious Starmine Most Accurate Forecaster Award and is still regarded as one of the top forensic analysts by large institutional long-only and hedge fund clients who use his bespoke research service. Stephen Clapham, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Looking forward to it. So, Stephen, could you tell us how you got involved in the financial markets? What was your journey? Well, it was purely by accident, to be to be honest. Um, I uh, long, long time ago, I was looking as to what my next move would be. I'd been a management consultant, and somebody suggested, "Why don't you go in the city?" And I said, "Well, you know." How would a Scottish grammar school lad like me get into the city? And um, he introduced me to um, someone and said, "Look, you know, go and see my 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 secretary's husband, um, Bob. We'll spend you know half an hour, have a cup of coffee with you, and tell you about the sort of things that you might be able to do." And I went to see this guy, and he said, oh, "Why don't you come and work for us?" Brilliant. <laughs> you know, one of these, like, I mean, complete serendipity. And you know, I didn't have the—I mean, I didn't have the first idea about what I was doing. I mean, PE ratio—I I mean, I couldn't have calculated it. I wouldn't have known what went on top, what went in the bottom. It I was a complete novice. I was trained as an accountant, so I understood what a balance sheet was, but the whole investment side of it, I had to learn. Brilliant. And so then, what what happened from there? So you were bitten by the bug, obviously. And it seems like something that was a you haven't got it. You haven't got you haven't got it, have you, Steve? Coronavirus. Um. May have had it um, in the summer. Don't know. I was in hospital, um, tested negative, but I didn't get to hospital at all quite late. So it's, uh, I think we may, I may have had it, um, but don't have it now, fortunately. Good. Well, one thing that will be a common refrain you'll, you'll find is that my weak attempts at humour will, will, will derail themselves spectacularly, leading to lots of sadness among our massive uh, listener base. Sorry, <laughs> I interrupted you. No, so um, the journey was that, I started off, I was the, I sat in research and my salary was paid by the corporate finance department. And I did all the corporate finance projects that required a lot of research input, but that there wasn't, either there wasn't a sector analyst or the sector analyst was busy. So it's quite an interesting um, introduction because I ended up being the privatization analyst. And my speciality was privatizations. Which which which, which, firm, which which firm is this with? Can this you say Horgavet? It's AB and Amro now, isn't it? It's well, oh, I've kind actually, of how many, it's like Doctor Who. How many so many owners? It's like a second-hand car, you know. <laughs> eight careful owners, but um, none of them treated them um, particularly well. But the 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 job, the role, was really fascinating because I ended up. I was the chairman's boy. So when the chairman had a project, he would call me up and he'd say, Steve, can you look into this? And he was one of the big swingers in the city. You know, he was really probably the number two broker in the city after David Mayhew's Richard Westmacott and Peter Minus Hagen ran the sales desk. And um, it, was a, it was a fascinating, fascinating time because these industries were coming to the stock market and there weren't any companies anywhere in the world that did what they did. So it was really evaluating the business from scratch. And um, I found it particularly intriguing, um, this idea that you could find a company which the government was selling off. It was selling off not with a view to raising money. It was selling off with a view to making the companies more efficient and giving the public a free ride you know, a free ride into the stock market. And um, one example would have been um, British Airports Authority, which um, we acted for as their broker. And so 
I got a fascinating insight into how do you prepare a government department um, stroke company um, for life in the commercial world. And it was an interesting business because there wasn't another airport anywhere in the world which was quoted. As a consequence of that, the, 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 the sale process was quite difficult because the only comparator was an airline. And of course, the, the polarity between the, the quality of a, an airport as a business and the quality of an airline as a business couldn't be more stark. In fact, in my, um, in my online course, um, in, my, in my online school, we actually use the example of BA and British Airways as two opposite ends of the quality spectrum. And as a consequence, of course, they came to the market quite cheaply. And um, there was a, a really fantastic opportunity to make money. And I remember um, going around in the chairman's car to pick up Tim Tacky, who was one of the senior fund managers at Fidelity at the time. And I took him down to see the chief executive and chairman of BAA. And, you know, this was, I was just a young analyst, right? But I happened to be on the inside of this transaction the company and I come to the market, I knew more about this business than anybody else in the, in the stock market. And I understood that this was a fantastic business. And of course, Tim Tacky, who now runs TT International, a big hedge fund, I mean, an incredibly successful investor. I mean, he understood and, you know, Fidelity immediately started buying. And, it, you know, it was an incredibly successful investment for them. Although in, that, in those days, the stocks came to the market um, often in partly paid form. So we were in a bull market, and by doing it, in, by bringing the stock partly paid for them, you paid 50% down and a 50% installment later. Of course, what you got was massive gearing in the share price, which was great in the bull market. But then we had the 1987 crash, and we were called round to see Sir Norman Payne, the chairman of BAA, um, at Schroeder's, their bank, along with the chairman of Schroeder's. And I walked around there with a the head of corporate finance from Porgavet. And I remember distinctly walking down Gresham Street. And um, this chap saying to me, he said, well, you know, these yuppies, they're all, they're all done now. And I, I, thought, I thought I might be out of a job. As it turned out, um, you know, we, we recovered from the crash and went on. <laughs> As you, know, you know what the playbook was. So can you give us a bit of insight into how you analyze the markets? How would you describe it? Is it your own method or um, how much of traditional economics does it use and how much does it throw out? Well, uh, you know, I'm not a really uh, a much of a, a macro analyst. No, I, I, I do try and usually dismally fail. Um, the, you know, the, the, the macro is just one input into my process. And I go in, in the book, there's sort of basically 13 chapters about, you know, my research process. And the macro is, is only one of those. Um, my, my research skill, if I've got any skill, is more, you know, looking at individual companies. I'm not brilliant at the, you know, the overall level of the market. Um, and I don't, I don't really don't really try to be. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's incredibly difficult to time markets. I mean, there are occasions where, you know, things look very clear. Um, I remember in late 2007, realizing that the price of money was increasing and, uh, and the, the supply of credit was reducing. And clearly that was a very negative trend. But I didn't forecast that the global financial crisis would happen. So when you see something like that, would you then start looking at interest rate cyclical stocks or would you already be looking at the interest rate cyclical stocks for signs of stress? Well, then um, at at that point, um, the the real risk was in anything that had leverage. And there were quite a few businesses which had been taking on leverage, you know, private equity-backed businesses, for example, where they had, um, you know, a lot of leverage. And as the availability of credit started to become tighter, um, there was, you know, clearly a squeeze coming on. But, there, you know, there were all sorts of um, opportunities at that point. Um, and there were, I mean, a whole range of, of, of stocks which were very badly affected. 
but the most badly affected ones were the, were the ones which had um, which had leverage, and particularly which had leverage that was short term and being rolled over. So you know, any company that um, was involved in leasing at, in back in two thousand and eight was a potential target because if the supply of credit and the availability of credit is starts to tight, starts to tighten. They find it more more difficult to roll over their roll over their debt. So, do you look for stocks then that will ride out a period like this, or do you look to be more active and switch as soon as the strategy, if you like, or the conditions for which you bought in the first place have changed? Well, um, you know, my um, specialty is special situations, and you know, in special situations, there there is there, there's usually some catalyst that you believe will happen, which will, you know, transform the, either the fortunes of the company or the perceptions, the stock market's perceptions of the company. And they can be short term or longer term. But what I've found is that as an analyst, you're much better off playing the long term game than the short term game. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> I, I've got great admiration for people that trade the market professionally and do it day in day out but um you know for me the you know with my particular skill set the you know what the market will do today is entirely random i mean you know there'll be some days that you have a strong feeling the market will go up or down because of some catalyst but i couldn't tell you today whether the stock market would end up or down it's completely random to me um and Similarly, with an individual stock, but if I if you start to lengthen the time horizon to 18, 24, or 36 months, then I'll have increasing confidence about my ability to predict what what's going to what's going to pan out in terms of the company's earnings. And usually, not always, but usually, the earnings translate into the stock price performance. That's interesting. So you've given us an insight into what you consider to be your time horizon, because short, medium and long term means very, very different things to very different investors and traders. So um, so let's say you've got yourself a setup where you're happy with the stocks that you've got. And I'd like to imagine that we've got a, a blank sheet and we start from scratch. You'll probably work out that what I'm actually trying to do is for you to divulge divulge all your secrets from your book in the, in the course of this uh, call. So um, so we'll learn everything about it. But in, in all seriousness, I'm I'm actually just very interested in how you start from your your clean sheet of having no positions, and then where whether what keeps you confident in holding that position, or what would make you want to get out of that position and decide actually it's not performing right or there's been a change in say the, the you know you mentioned earlier the credit situation that that might make you want to get out and maybe look at something else and just before you answer that do you go short as well or is this long only so i mean the the principles in the book um can be applied both long and short you know my my um career um on the buy side started in hedge funds and ended in hedge funds. Actually, I I'm, I did a spell um, helping a wealth manager um, pick international stocks and um, in in between. So you know my most of my investing career has been both long and short. And when I was in the south side, my speciality was shorts because I worked for you know um, s- smaller firms where. We were trying to be um, helpful, give advice to some of the most successful hedge funds in the world. And obviously, if you're in the sell side, the least competition is on the short side. Would you, of the would you say that it, being a forensic accountant gave you a bit of an edge in the short side? Well, obviously, it helps, right? Yeah. So you know, you can, you know, my my skill is in in trying to find people that are overstating their earnings. Um, you don't often see companies understating their earnings. So your skill uh, uh, in understanding a balance sheet doesn't really help you as much on the long side. So it makes you a bit like a corporate whistleblower in a, in a sense. Well, um, in, a, in a sense, in a, in, a, in a little bit. But, you know, the, 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 problem, the, bias, the problem is always the, the bias is always the finding something that the company's trying to 
trying to hide. The, prob- um, the, problem, the problem is that this shorting is deemed to be so unpopular that many people get really kind of pitchfork angry about it. I remember um, meeting a guy in, I think it was Las Vegas, with Stansbury Research, and he was a short seller, and he said, my job is basically to find wounded animals by the side of the road and then just run over them a few times. And some people... <laughs> Some people don't respond terribly well to that as a business practice. Well, you know, short sellers provide a very um, important function in, in the stock market. Which is price and, discovery. Yeah. And, and you know, would we have had um, such a period with Wirecard if there hadn't been short sellers? Um, Could you explain the Wirecard story? It's not one I'm, I'm, I'm that for. I know the FT's been banging on about it, but unfortunately the FT is an unreadable piece of crap. So uh, it's, I've kind of lost the message on that. Well, What's Wirecard, the story with Wirecard? Wirecard was uh, a fraud, which was identified by the FT in February 2019. I think they talked about it before, but there was a, it really started to break, and it really started to become well-known in February 2019. And, um, you know, the short sellers all piled in. I mean, some of them had been short for some quite, quite some considerable time in advance of that. Um, and it took until June 2020 for the for the company to finally fold. But the, be, between that time, um, Baffin, the German financial regulator, tried, for example, to ban short selling in stock because it was trying to control the short sellers. And I suspect that if it hadn't been for the short sellers, it might have taken even longer for that business to unwind. And I, I don't know the journalist um, involved. I mean, he obviously did a very, very good job. But where did he find the story in the first place? I don't know whether he found the story from a whistleblower on the inside or whether it was a short seller that directed them to the to the to the opportunities to to the story. You know, short sellers provide a, a useful function in the stock market, and I understand why they might be not universally popular. Um, but you know, you, you do need them. To put you on the spot just a little, Tesla, long or short? Well, I find Tesla uh, an absolutely remarkable story. I mean, I can't come anywhere close to what its current valuation is. I haven't recommended it as a short, simply because, you know, the price is so irrational. It could be twice the current share price, and it wouldn't be any more irrational. I think one of our... Sorry to interrupt. for some time. You know, if you said, if you asked me in January... I'd have said exactly the same thing. And one of our one of our former um, guests said, uh, "You don't short a cult," which seems to be appropriate advice in the case of Tesla. Yeah, well, I think it's very, I think it's very risky shorting it, and there's lots of people that have really lost a lot of money. I mean, I think you know the the strategy with a stock like Tesla is to find the point where you think that there is some resistance and, and buy some puts. Mm. Uh, but, but you know, shorting it. You know, the, the trouble with short selling is it's a very different skill from um, long only investing because, you know, when you buy a stock and it goes down, it doesn't feel that it takes a huge amount of bravery to buy more of it. And, you know, my process is you, you, you go through a whole series of checks to make sure that your original hypothesis is still valid. But once you've done that, then you can you, you can average down um, up to your up to your original risk limit. Of course, when you when a short goes wrong, your position is even greater. So you know it takes much more courage to increase the position, and I, I find that really really difficult. And when you're holding a stock, you receive or you can receive, not always, but you will receive dividends. So at least you're... Dividends? What's that, granddad? <laughs> so there is some, um, there, there is some uh, you know, balance in the pain that you might be taking in a stock that's gone down, but the reverse isn't necessarily true when you short a stock. But uh, so your, your timing has, has got to, as you quite rightly say, shorting a stock that's going up feels a lot worse. It just, it's just how we're wired, isn't it? Well, uh, I mean, I, I think, think the, the whole psychology is, is more difficult. And of course, shorting used to be, a, a, you know, a potentially more profitable endeavor because you had interest rates. So you could earn some cash, earn some money on the cash. Mm. So obviously you were selling the stock, you had to pay the borrow, and you could, could invest the, the, the cash and, and earn some interest. 
No, that, that just isn't, isn't possible. Interest, so, what's that, Granddad? Yeah. Cash, what's so, that, Granddad? So it, it's become a much more difficult um, thing to do. And also, it's probably more a crowded um, thing because many years ago, I mean, I can remember, you know, the, the first short that I got involved with was Eurotunnel. And um, oh, I remember that was, that. Just, that was just a black hole, wasn't it? Yeah, and then you know, I, I was um, I'd started a new a new brokerage firm, and the the salesman was over from New York, and he said, "Have you got any good shorts?" Is there light and, at the end of the tunnel? Well, I, but uh, you know, when he said, "Have you got any good shorts?" I thought he was asking about my you know my clothing choice. <laughs> you know, I, I, not, not that, you, you laugh. But I'd never heard of this shorting. I mean, you know, this is a long time ago. So this would yeah. be 1992. Yeah. And um, he then, you know, I said, well, you know, obviously the most overvalued stock in my sector is Eurotunnel. It's just, you know, worth nothing uh, or a, at least, you know, a small fraction of the current share price. So he was delighted. And so we then got on the, on the call to his client in New York in the, con- in the meeting room, in the conference call. And um, we got on the call to Tiger, you know, Julian yes, Roberts, yes. famous hedge fund. And Jim Lyle, on the other end of the phone, I ran through the story and he thought, oh, this sounds fantastic. You know, um, and he, I think he put on a small order and he said, OK, can you um, can you send me your model? And I said to the I signaled to the salesman, I said, you know, I don't have a model. So and the salesman said, yeah, Steve will send you the model tonight. And I said, no, so you, so you quickly got on the phone to Neil Ferguson. I, you know, I just said, Jim, this isn't that complicated. Here's the basic numbers. You don't need a model. This is blindingly obvious. And he went, oh, cranky. Yeah, you don't need a model, do you? And he ended up shorting, I think, 3% of the company. Wow. I remember we shorted it in France because it was was easier to get the borrow. And um, it went from £6 when he started shorting it to 50p. Wow. When he closed the store. And, um, you know, that, and of course, at that time, you got quite a lot of money on the cash, a lot of interest on the cash. So it was an incredibly profitable short because on the, on the long side, of course, it was bouncing longs. It was a bull market. So what had you seen? What was it, if you can remember, what had you actually seen in the, in the balance sheet that, that made this such an obvious trade? Oh, I, I, I mean, Eurotunnel was... I know it was a disaster. I do remember. I actually remember it from the time being overvalued. But but it was a complete, it was a complete joke. The you know the, the 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 forecast. So it's all about the traffic forecast and how much you can charge going through the tunnel. Did it have any earnings and, at this point? And no, I, no. I mean, it was still it was still, still under construction. Yeah. It was still under construction. So you had you had two risks. You had the risk that the construction project would would run into difficulties, which you know every big construction project that's that complicated has got a very high probability. And the other risk was that the traffic forecasts would be too optimistic. And our, when they did the prospectus, they made the traffic forecasts available to analysts. So you, you didn't get just the published data, you got one level down. And that would include assumptions like the conversion of air traffic into road traffic. And if I tell you that there was a, I, I've forgotten what the number was, I think it was 10%. They assumed that 10% of people who are flying to Mallorca would go by car through the tunnel. And I, just what? like, it's just absolutely <laughs> ludicrous. You know, Mallorca at the time was the, the single largest destination for UK holidaymakers. Mallorca's nowhere near Paris. Bucket and spade holiday. It would have taken them two weeks to drive there and exactly. back. Get, exactly. you know, go through the tunnel and then get a ferry from Spain. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, one percent would be in too large a number. So it was blindingly obvious that the numbers were completely off. You know, I mean, you didn't need any skill at all. It was just common sense, and all the best investment ideas don't require any skill. They just require some common sense and confidence. Yeah. So take, taking a look at where we are now, um, the genie of of uh, of no interest on our money is out of the bottle. So we have to talk about alternatives. Do you look at things like gold and Bitcoin and um, things like that? Or are you, because you can't analyze them with a balance sheet, do you steer away from them? 
Well, I I use gold instead of bonds now um, for, for my PA, you know, my personal. So, you know, we'll see whether that's correct or not. But, Do you really – the problem I have with gold is that it's, it's an investment you don't really want to work for you in, in a major way because if it does, it says something rather terrible about the state of the world. Well, my view is that it's insurance. Yeah. So, you know, I'm prepared to – pay a certain insurance premium to protect my my portfolio and I, that premium is the the bull market that I'm foregoing and that portion of my portfolio that's allocated to gold but you know we'll see what happens i mean i'm not a great macro forecaster but i think it's highly likely that we'll enter a period um, in which there's higher inflation. And in the past, when we've had higher inflation, it's been good we've for commodities. had e-rating of the stock market. Mm. Now, it's entirely possible that that won't be repeated this time. I mean, I, I'm not predicting anything, but should we have that de-rating? And the, the, the de-rating is quite remarkable. When inflation goes above 4%, yeah. stock market's been on a very much lower multiple. Now, I could come up with a load of good reasons why that shouldn't happen this time round, and I haven't studied all those instances and why that's happened every time before. But it has happened every time before, so we'll see. Um, seems to me gold is, you know, a good thing to have in a certain part of your portfolio. You can't own any bonds at this point. I don't, I don't believe. I mean, I, I do dabble in corporate bonds from time to time because they they often get, you know, the distress situations often get quite cheap. So you can buy a bond at a discount and you get both the yield. Obviously, it's an enhanced yield because you're buying at a discount and you get the opportunity for some capital gain. So that's, those are the sort of bond investments I tend to do rather than buying gilts or T-bills. But gold, gold performs that function for me in my personal portfolio today. But, you know, how you construct your own personal portfolio is a, a very personal individual decision i wouldn't advocate that other people should do that i mean you know at my age with my risk profile i've got some quite high risk investments so having balancing that with some gold means that if something disastrous does happen i'll have at least some um some little card in my portfolio which goes up not down Speaking of uh, disastrous things happening, um, one question we ask guests at the moment is, is what's happening in the world in relation to coronavirus or rather the PCR test pandemic and lockdowns? Is this cock up or conspiracy or both in your view? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, are you talking about the UK specifically? Or talking yeah, let's start with, start with the UK, start with the yeah, home, no, home, home, been, home market. I've been rather surprised and disappointed at how badly we've, we've handled all of this. And, you know, it seems to me we were very late um, taking action back in March. And it seems to me that either we were quite late taking action this time round, or we shouldn't have taken any action. Mm. And, you know, I'm not the prime minister and, you know, having to make that judgment and take that risk. But I wonder whether, the you know, this current spate of lockdown was sensible. I mean, if you've got a strategy which says we're going to do this locally, regionally, why you then decide to do it nationally is completely beyond me. And, you know, I'm sitting in central London where the fortunately the incidence is, is quite low. And, you know, the... The, the hospitals near me, they've got very few um, COVID patients. Um, my, I, I, I learned just last week. So, how you did know, you how did you learn that? Because um, I know somebody that works in the hospital. Right, great. Um, okay, and they told me, you know, they told yeah. me how many COVID patients there were, and it was a fraction of what it was back in March, April time. I mean, in, I, I, in, I some, in some late breaking news, are you familiar with a guy called uh, Dr. Rainer Fulmich? I'm not, no. Okay, so Rainer Fulmich is a German class action lawyer, and yesterday he filed a class action suit in America, I believe, against Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook on behalf of Dr. Wolfgang... Hold on, I've got his name. Wolfgang Vardog. A Vodark, sorry. Um, and basically, the gist of the case is, uh, I understand, it, it ultimately comes down to the PCR test, but he's, I think he's having, having to go a circuitous route to get there. 
basically his argument is that the PCR test is unfit for purpose. All it does is throw up lots of false signals and junk data. It should never have been used. I think that's ultimately where this case will end up. But in the meantime, he's having a go at the social media companies that have basically cancelled this guy, Dr. Vodak, for basically speaking out against the PCR test validity. Um, so if you, if you take that argument, this isn't a pandemic. This is a, well, there's a pandemic of coronavirus, but it's, it's basically comparable to, to common flu. It has a um, fatality rate of 0.14% or so. But what, what has happened is that, you know, big pharma and certain bad actors, no names, the World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, so, so some anonymous bad actors behind the scenes have basically fueled a hysteria globally which is making a nice amount of money for people selling vaccines. Now, you say that and it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but the conspiracy theory cannot be a conspiracy if the World Economic Forum has published a fucking book with the title The Great Reset about it. Well, I think the the issue for me is the false positives in the test and the, the, the calibration of the testing has been done too widely. So, of course, that then causes you to take, you know, excessive action. Now, I quite understand why somebody in a position of responsibility would want to err on the cautious side. But um, when you err on the cautious side in a sequence of events, you end up taking, you know, quite significantly different action from action you would take if the bands were narrower. And I think we may have suffered um, somewhat from that. And, you know, I I'm, I feel terrible for, you know, so many people whose businesses have been decimated by this. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend this morning who's had to close their business, make all their staff redundant. And, um, you know, for, for what? Uh, and, and, you know, what, how will we come out of this? You know, what will 2021 look like? Um, I'm backing twigs as currency myself, but I know that's a fringe call. Yeah, I, I'm not not familiar with that one myself. Leaves, leaves. Have you tried leaves? You know, I'm quite close to expertise. I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to corner the market in leaves. Well, you can, I, I can sell you quite a few if you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the wrong side of this trade. I might have to go short my own trade. This doesn't make any sense. So, Steve, can I ask you how close your method of analysis would would fit in with, um, say, Warren Buffett's or, or looking at value in the way that Tim does? Well, I mean, I'm not really, um, you know, some people have branded me as a value investor. I mean, I, I don't really know what a value investor is. But to me, the definition of investor is somebody who tries to find something buy something for less than it's worth. <laughs> and, you know, you can do that in various ways. You can buy a company that's got high growth or you can buy a company that's got a lot of assets. And one might be very, have a very low multiple and the other one might have a very high multiple. My particular speciality, as I explain in the book, is to try and find companies whose profit potential has been underestimated or in the short side, overestimated by the stock market. And I found, and you know, the book starts with what makes a good investment. And I say, look, you know, the way I do it is I try and find a stock where the market thinks it's going to make X, and I think it's going to make X plus 50%. Mm. And I'll have some fundamental reason for that hypothesis. And then in the book, I go through how I test that hypothesis. Um, and I go, I also go through, you know, how do I find those ideas? But then I go through, how do you test that hypothesis <laughs> and make sure you're buying the stock that really does have that upside potential? And how do you check what the downside risk is? Because investing is always, as you know, about balancing that upside potential with the downside risk. And I think, you know, the growth value debate is really one where, you know, growth people are optimistic and looking at the upside and value people are less optimistic and looking at protecting the downside. But I think most good investors look at both. And, you know, Tim's got a a value bias um, to his portfolio, but I bet you there's some good stocks in his portfolio which have got plenty of growth opportunity. There just may not be as highly priced as some others. 
you ever get tempted to look outside of the UK at perhaps other markets, say America or Japan or, or, or elsewhere? I, I, I've got very little of my portfolios in the UK. Ah, uh, interesting. I, I don't think there's that many, <laughs> that many attractive companies in the UK. And, you know, when I was, uh, when I was in the hedge funds, we were global investors um, generally. And, you know, there's, there's, the world's a big place. And there's all sorts of markets where you can find either undiscovered opportunities or you can find um, stocks which are, are lower risk opportunities because there's a lot of information about them. So America is a highly priced stock market, but it's relatively easy to do the research because when you download the 10K, you've immediately got a document which tells you not everything you need to know, but a big chunk of what you need to know. So America has always, for me, been a very fruitful area of exploration, particularly in that mid-cap area. You can buy a $5 billion stock in America which has got very little sell-side coverage and where people don't really know that much about it. And, the, the, you know, there's often big opportunities for mispricing because the stock market's got the wrong idea of the profit potential. So when, that's the type of thing that I look for. So when you say sell-side side coverage, just for the listeners who might not know what that means, it's basically people selling the stock within brokers, so advertising it. So in other words, it's, it's a kind of, um, so what you're saying is it's a, a hidden gem in some ways. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the biggest companies will have 25, 35 analysts following them and producing profit forecasts. And so you have a consensus estimate, which is often the thing which is the true driver of the share price, particularly in the United States, which is, you know, which reflects a lot of views and is therefore more likely to be right. If you then find a $5 billion stock, which only has three or four analysts covering it, and they're not covering it very seriously, often you'll find that those sorts of situations, the consensus estimates of profitability aren't that accurate. And that there is a very good chance that those estimates will be exceeded by a wide margin. And those are the areas where you know I tend to look because... That allows me to apply my skills and, um, you know, try and find ideas where there's good upside, but there's not a lot of downside risk. You know, if I think that the consensus estimate is the lowest possible result for that business, then what I assume is that, the, you know, this current share price properly reflects that estimate. So if I think then, oh, look, if this company makes what I think it will make, it, the shares will go up a lot, but if I'm wrong, if I haven't done my homework accurately, or if there's some external factor that comes to upset me, I won't lose very much because it will still make what the, what the stock market is predicting. So that's the sort of opportunity that I look for. Do you look at contrary? I mean, some of that is an element of contrary opinion theory, but do do you have that as one of your pillars of your strategy? Well, I think um, you always want to look at your hypothesis and ask, why have you got a different perspective from the stock market? Because if you just think the same as the stock market, I mean, I'm not saying you can't make money. You know, you can buy, you know, high quality businesses and they will deliver for you over over time. Um, but if you want to make above market returns and um, really high returns, as you do, if you're if you're working in a hedge fund, you've kind of got to deliver better returns and better ideas. Otherwise, why would people want to pay you two and 20? So you then have to, to look for these um, opportunities. And the attraction of working in a big hedge fund is that you've got lots of resources at your disposal. So you've got lots of sell-side research coming into you, analyst notes and so on. You've got lots of very good salespeople giving you feedback on what the stock market is doing, what people are thinking. And you've got enough time to devote to really dig down and find these opportunities. So America is one place you're looking at. What, what about, say, uh, slightly more underdeveloped markets? Um, we, we had a guest on the show who was looking at uranium in, uh, was it? He's looking at what? Yeah, yeah that's right, uranium. Um, so some of, the, of some of which were mined in African countries, which... Obviously, the, the the markets are not as developed, and the, it sounded very exciting because 
the it it sounded like winding the clock back to the 80s or maybe early 90s um in terms of where they were do you ever look at places like that yeah i mean um you know in in the hedge funds we were definitely exploring and you know i can remember finding a cement company in africa which was on um it was building a new new plant so it was going to grow its output very significantly and i reckon it was on two times ebitda um we couldn't you know buy enough of it because it, you know it, it wasn't um sufficiently large for us to take a big position but there's all sorts of opportunities like that when you go further afield um and you know i i mean personally i'll always have a look at you know some of those situations so there's a, you know some i mean africa you've got to be prepared to tolerate the volatility and obviously there's very very wide spreads i mean i made a net investment in africa um last year and i i realized afterwards that there was a 40% spread i hadn't i mean i hadn't imagined that the spread could be could be that high oh and and you know it was only after i'd done the trade that i i thought well why is this why is this not going up more and it the, the particular thing had gone up 40%. Uh, and, and the, you know, I hadn't made any money. I mean, it, you know, yeah. just, it was an ETF, actually. And, you know, you, I just had to, I just assumed that an ETF would have a relatively narrow spread. I hadn't, I hadn't thought that the, the spread would be that 40%. I mean, I, you know, completely, um, completely my fault. But fortunately, you know, it went up a lot. So, you know, I, I could afford the 40% drag, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't make that mistake again. Um, but, the, you know, as long as you're quite careful, um, obviously, there's, obviously, there's all sorts of volatility and risk. So, you know, I keep positions very, very small in, in those areas. But there, there's, you know, there's interesting opportunities. And as long as you've got time, you know, what you don't want to do is to own something like that and have to make the money within a set period. So obviously, if you're a professional investor, you've got, you know, you've got to deliver in the short term and in the long term for your own personal portfolio. Obviously, it's nice if things work quickly, but um, if, they, if it takes some time for a stock to come right, it, does, that doesn't, it doesn't matter. So you're you're obviously very passionate about the way you invest, the way you started investing, and and I know that you you train various institutional clients to analyze the markets in the same way that you do for trading. So there's very much an emphasis on the practical elements of what you know and applying it. It, it seemed like a natural progress, progression that you would then write a book. Um, tell us a. Tell us a bit more about that process and why you started it, and and was it a cathartic exercise, for example? Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, we're recording this on Tuesday the 24th, which is the day the, the book's been released, and um, the, the the process of doing the marketing and it, it has been has been difficult, you know. Um, a lot of work in, involved. The the process of writing the book. I, I, I mean, I I quite enjoyed it. I, it's actually it's slightly distinct from my institutional training. So just to explain, I've got um, a training business which trains two types of people. So I train um, professional investors, um, usually analysts with a bit of experience, and I have a forensic accounting course, which is really a forensic analysis course, which not only goes through the, the, the accounts, but looks at all the other signals that they should look for. And that's to help them improve their skills. And um, I then decided to try and help private investors. And so I've got now got an online training school where you can either buy a, a smaller course or sign up for our Analyst Academy 12-month program in which we go through the whole thing about how do you read the accounts, how do you um, analyze a company, how do you value a business? How do you construct and manage a portfolio? How do you manage your emotions? How do you keep control of that portfolio? And that's a that's a big course, twelve month program. But the the book is kind of like a, a, a subsection of that that program, 
and it covers the analysis and part of the accounting and part of the valuation content. And, you know, I started the book before I started the online school, but then, you know, the two things have developed in, have developed in parallel. And it's been helpful writing the book and it's been helpful building the courses because one has informed the other. And, um, you know, if people buy the book, there's actually a, a code that you can use to get 20% off our, our course, which helps people. How do you, you know, how do you analyze a business? And um, the, the institutional stuff is obviously more complex, more detailed. But what we've done in the book is give a little glimpse of the sorts of tools and techniques that you can deploy as a private investor. Um, not that I think every private investor reading the book will deploy all the tools and tips and techniques that we've got in the book. But I think you know, a lot of professional investors will read the book, they'll know 80% of it, but hopefully they'll find two or three good ideas. And for the private investor, I'm hoping that they'll all go away with a, a lot of help and a lot of tools that they can, that they can use it's quite interesting. I did a course in person, um, which basically relates to the book. And one of the things that I recommend um, private investors do is before they buy a stock, they write down why they're buying it. And I'm not saying they should write a 30-page research note, as I would do at a hedge fund where you know I was proposing an idea and I had to document not you know all the reasons that, that it would work and all the possible reasons that it would go wrong. I say to the private investors, look, write down, firstly, what does the company do? Write down, what's your hypothesis? Why are you buying this stock? And write down, what are, what are the things that you think could go wrong? And the reason for doing that is that later on, something will go wrong. <laughs> you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got a, a stock portfolio, there's nobody in the world that doesn't have things don't pan out as they expected. And having that anchor of a, a document which says, this is what I was expecting, that you can then look back at and say, okay, is this event something that I was anticipating or is it something that I didn't expect? And if it's something that you didn't expect, usually the right answer is to just sell the stock because you haven't done your analysis correctly. And therefore, whether you're you're making a, a loss or whether you're making a profit, you haven't you 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 haven't expected this event, and the chances are that you should you should exit. But writing down the note is is a good discipline. Now, in this particular course, the people who who were attending it were actually full time investors, so they're private investors, but they they invested full time, and they all said, "Oh man, we you know couldn't do that, couldn't write it." No, and I said, "Look, do me a favor. You know, you've spent money, um, you know, coming on this course today. Just try it for your next investment. See if it works." And you know, a couple of months later, I started getting the emails and saying, "You know what? I did that right. You know, it was only inside of A4, but I did write it down. And you know what? It's really helped me." And so, I, you know, I hope that there'll be examples like that in the book that people will take away and they'll help them become better investors. It's a good way of kind of front, uh, well, it's a good way of working out in advance how you're going to feel about something and going back to that piece of paper and saying, well, look, I was expecting this amount of bad news rather than what we know about markets is if you react to them as things unfold, you'll usually make the wrong decision. So it's like the old adage of plan your trade, trade your plan. And it sounds like that's a very good way of, of making people really think about why they bought something. They're not just buying it because they've suddenly seen, um, you know, somebody on the TV saying, or somebody on Bloomberg saying, you know, this is a buy. They've actually thought about it because secondhand views are not ones that you're going to be um, that you're not going to be willing to hold positions when the market goes against you if you if you haven't really done your research. Um, so so sounds fascinating. Sounds like you probably got more than one book in you as well. Well, I um, <laughs> it, it, I was expecting it, well, Tim to make a comment there, a funny comment, but he didn't. But <laughs> well, yeah, I was just well, it would be it would be, it would be a first. I was laughing because you know it's not an easy thing to do. And I, I'm, I'm tempted to write a second book, which is about 
you know, how do you forensically analyze a set of accounts? That sounds and, that um, sounds really interesting. You know, that would be really interesting. But you know, the thing about a book is there's no money in it. Mm. And um it takes there's you. Money, there's money time. in mine, but that's only because I, I use five five pound notes as bookmarks. But the I mean it may, you know, if this book is successful and uh, thankfully um, you know, we we had a special offer on the launch day of one ninety nine for the Kindle, so that went to number one in the investing category in in Amazon. So um, if the, that then translates into good sales of the of the of the physical book and the the full price ebook, then you know I'll definitely think about doing another book. But it's a lot. It's a lot of work, and I've been really enjoying um, my time building my online training courses. So if I do that as a training course, I may do again. I may convert convert it into a book or do the two to do the two at the same time, which is what I did. Um, this time around, but the 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 important thing about about doing it, I think, is it forces you to think through your own process. So writing the book has helped me as an investor because I've now got uh, a document which says this is what I should be doing. So when I start to to dabble in the stock market, I've got to think about oh well, have you have you covered all the points in the book? So. You know, I've been doing this for 25 plus years. And the beauty about the stock market is you never stop learning. Yes, indeed. And um, I was, Tim, uh, sorry, I've asked a lot of questions. So I want to obviously give Tim a chance to ask some things. No, no I mean, uh, this, is all, this is all great stuff. Um, I suppose my question would be, Steve, um, if you were giving advice to a young investor, and you were only allowed sort of one, one, mag- one silver bullet uh, by way of that. What, what would that, what would that piece of advice would that be? Read the accounts. Mm. The, there's a, a fascinating series of studies that I cover in the forensic accounting course, saying to my professional investors, "You would not believe that you could have an information advantage from reading the accounts." But I, I go through loads of evidence, and um, there was an academic study which suggested that the average S&P 500 company had their accounts downloaded from SEC Edgar, which is the official repository of financial information and regulatory information for companies quoted in the United States, on the day of publication and the following day. How many times do you think the accounts are downloaded? Have a guess. I, I, I simply don't know. It was 28 times. <laughs> okay, that, that is shocking. That is, I mean... It is incredible, right? And I thought, well, you know, maybe these are these accounts are all being downloaded from the company's own website. And so I went through the top ten companies in America, and of course, the tech companies store the the data on their own server. But Exxon, you know, one of the largest companies, and, and until very recently, the largest company in the United States, <clears throat> when you go on the Exxon website and ask to download the ten k or the accounts. They direct you to the SEC Edgar site. You know, um, it's quite remarkable. And there was a survey done by one of the big accounting firms, and they surveyed 450 analysts. And of those analysts, only two-thirds said that they looked at the accounts. And look, these are professional equity and credit analysts on both the sell side and the buy side. And you can imagine if one-third of them admit they haven't read the accounts, there's probably the actual numbers, probably one in two, not one in three. So I think the the single bullet I would say is read the accounts. That's very interesting because um, I always thought that um, because accountants are so smart and especially ones in big firms are so smart at making the numbers look the way they want them to look that that it would be very difficult to kind of penetrate to the 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 core of what's going on. But I guess that just comes with experience and and being told or learning what to look for yeah i mean I, I i don't think it's hugely complicated you know i i've got a series of videos on on my website and i've got this um i call it a club where we um you know people sign up it's all free and we've got all sorts of data so there's articles about investing there's fund letters from you know successful fund managers and there's a whole free training area, and I've done some videos uh, on accounting red flags, explaining, you know, how do you how do you look at working capital ratios? 
what's the thing to look for? What if you see this? What should you do? Um, talk about you know comparing cash flow and earnings numbers, explaining all of that, um, explaining that you should read the audit report. I think there's ten um, so far. There's ten videos which um, just go through all all this. Um, you know how you should look at the accounts and how you should use it to help you. And of course, in the book, we explain those um, concepts and 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 some other tricks that you can do to check that the the management aren't trying to cheat you. Brilliant. So, if you were to, um, I don't want to put you on the spot with individual stocks, but if we were to say certain sectors that you find more compelling and other sectors that you find less compelling what would you where would you be more interested in terms of markets at the moment or obviously sectors sorry well you know none of this is an investment recommendation no absolutely of course and um i don't you know really try and be a stock pundit because i think you know the way i see my role is to try and help people improve their own skills so rather than say you should go and buy X, Y, Z. I say, well, why don't you go and look at this sort of company and this is the way to do it? Sure. And in a way, that's a much, I mean, to me, that's a more helpful and more enduring um, help for the for the, for the investor. But, you know, I've been pretty um, cautious for some time about the big oil companies, the oil majors. Not that I expected Shell to cut its dividend, not that I expected COVID. I mean, obviously, these are um, unusual and, and, and certainly I didn't anticipate those events. But I did anticipate that Shell wouldn't be able to continue its 75-year track record of never cutting its dividend simply because of the business that in, it's involved in. So, you know, uh, the big oil, <clears throat> a massive transformation to make from being uh, producers of highly polluting substances to being more balanced energy um, businesses. And I think they've started a bit too late. Um, It's going to be a very big struggle for them. And I'm a very strong believer that the dividend yield isn't a valuation measure. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you should buy that because, you know, it's got a good dividend. And that works to an extent, but only works to the extent that the dividend's safe. So I don't believe that the dividend yield is a measure of valuation. I believe it's a measure of the return that you may make, um, but I don't use it as a valuation tool. And I explain that in in the book. Um, on the positive side, you'll laugh because, you know, my background is that the, one of the sectors that I followed when I was in the south side was the transport sector. And um, Obviously, with COVID, that sector has been pretty decimated. And there are all sorts of issues about, you know, balance sheet and strain and, and hits. But the, the, there's a number of, of travel-related, direct travel, travel-related travel businesses that I think have got, you know, quite a, a bright future. Because the one thing that we know is that there will be fewer participants in many sectors going forward. So looking at that, I'm looking at the the casual dining sector, um, big sector in the United States. The the you know you've got a, a situation in which there's going to be a lot less capacity going forward. The demand will return, and in my view, I mean I always was confident that the that there would be a vaccine and that we would see the, the end of this and that life would go back to normal. It might be a slightly different normal. You know, we might not all be going into offices every day and there might be some changes like that. People, people will want to go out to eat. They may they may well want to have more deliveries of food to their home. I mean, that may be an enduring um, change, but people will want to go out to eat. And um, that could be a highly profitable sector in, in the future because if there's less restaurants competing, then the, the the ones that are left will be fuller and will be able to charge more. Interesting. I think um, I'm I'm being slightly nosy and I'm looking over your shoulder and I can see one thousand and one books and I'm just so I'd like to go to Media Picks if, if have you that's had the right. time to count them all, Paul. Yeah. Um, have you have you uh, 
Tim, have you got any other more questions, or could we go no, to I'm Media Picks? We can go to Media Picks now because so, I, I love the idea of a thousand one books, and I'm just I'm I just love to know what that that's about. Oh, it, it, somebody gave me it. It's um, <laughs> you know that there's a whole series of these things. You know, a thousand one books you've got to read before you die. Yes, and, I've got um, I've got the films one, so I thought it was that, but then it said obviously books. So yeah, I. I to, to be honest, I haven't bought any of the books it recommends, and there's still quite a pile. The bottom shelf, below the below my book, The Smart Money Method, How to Pick Stocks Like a Hedge Fund Pro, which you can see three copies of. That's available in all good my books, pile Steve. Of stock, my pile of books to read. And um, I've actually read that one, A World Without Work, by Daniel Susskind. I don't know if you've, if you've read that. It's a very fascinating um, study of how we go forward as automation takes more uh, of the, the, the lower paid jobs. Um, and I've, I've got a lot of books still to read. <laughs> so what we do, I don't, I don't know if Tim's warned you, um, and the reason why I'm talking about books is because we always have a, a, a kind of like a media picks round at the end of uh, the podcast, because it's so fascinating to get an insight into what people are enjoying it could just be something that you're enjoying on the tv on netflix or amazon or somewhere else or it could be like you say a book i mean obviously we're going to put links to the show notes for your your particular book so people have got links to to find that but whilst whilst we were talking and given what you do as a forensic accountant as uh, as your background as a forensic accountant it reminded me of a series that i really enjoyed on netflix i wonder whether you'd seen it it's called dirty money yeah yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I did see that, and I, I, I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed that one as well. Not all of them, but there were some that were that were particularly enjoyable. Um, my picks on the book side would be Morgan Housel's "The Psychology of Money." Mm-hmm. Excellent book. Excellent. Have you have you read that? I thought yeah, I mean, excellent book. If I'd read that, I would have given up writing a book. Mm. It was so good. <laughs> you know, I couldn't possibly do anything nearly as good as that. Um, but, you know, if you're half as good as that, then you're, you're doing quite well. Um, the other book that I read um, relatively recently um, is Range by David Epstein. And this is a fascinating book. I bought the book because I heard him on a podcast. So hopefully podcasts are good for studying books. Um, <laughs> And he was really, really interesting. And this book is fascinating because it looks at, I think um, Stephen Tetlock described them as hedgehogs and foxes. So it looks at experts and people with a broader range of expertise. So it looks, it compares um, Tiger Woods, who played golf and nothing but golf from a very, very, very early age. And obviously is a fantastic golfer. And he talks about Roger Federer who didn't start playing tennis seriously until he was a teenager. And he'd done a wide variety of other sports. And his his view, his conclusion is that you're better off having a wide range of skills because being able to do multiple things will enable you to do the thing that you decide to concentrate on better. And um, I think that's particularly um, valuable advice for people who are interested in investing, because you need to have a wide range of skills. Great. Well, look, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's um, It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, if you are considering um, writing another book, please let us know because we'd love to have you back on. We'd love to have how, you back how, on. How much does the, uh, the book cost, Steve? So the book... Um, <laughs> The, the publisher originally priced it at twenty five pounds. Who is the publisher? The publisher is Harriman Haas. Oh, done they're, they're an excellent publishing company. They, 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 they published they, Tim's they, book. Yeah, <laughs> they did a fantastic job. They did a fantastic job in editing and, and everything. I, I persuaded them to reduce the price to nineteen ninety nine, and they very kindly let me do the first day on the Kindle at one ninety nine. And um, there's a lot of students and people who. I mean, they can't really afford to spend twenty pounds on a book, and so this has given them the opportunity to, to to buy it cheaply. And of course, I think hope that people will buy the book on Kindle and then want to have it on their bookshelf. So I've been telling everyone that you want to have the smart money method on your bookshelf when you're doing a Zoom call, and um, hopefully it will catch on. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I genuinely hope people enjoy the book and get get something out of it. It's a great pleasure. 
talking to you guys this morning. Thank you so much for having me on. There is a rumor circulating on Twitter that a copy of your book, what's it called again? The Smart Money Method. The Smart Money Method. That a copy of the book, The Smart Money Method, if it's detected on Zoom, will lead to enhanced sexual magnetism. Well, I I think that's absolutely, that's what, why I've got three of them here. <laughs> I'll let you know. Can you actually stand up from your desk? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Steve, thank you so much once again. It's been a, it's been so interesting. A real pleasure. I'm sure the book will be exactly the same. I'm going to get myself a copy. And uh, look, just good luck with the launch. I'm sure you've got more more uh, work to do. Are you, having, with... are you having a launch, Steve? Well, this is the kind of the sad thing. So um, Harriman said I could do like a Zoom call and they've got uh, – you know, the facility to handle, um, I don't know, you know, 500 people or so on. Well, what, what's the point in that? Because you can't really, you know, you can't have a drink with, you know, a, a large group of people. Well, I tell you what, tell you what, Steve, we've got company premises in Hatton Garden. I'm arranging a grouse shoot there, which is uh, allowed under government uh, circumstances and guidelines. So if you'd like to join me in my corporate business grouse shoot to launch your book, I would be delighted to host you. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much indeed. We'll talk about that after. Could you just tell us how people could get in contact with you? Yeah, of course. And thank you. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's been fun doing it. Thank you for having me on. So my name is Stephen Clapham with a PH, which is the smart money method, how to pick stocks like a hedge fund pro. That's on the cover. But everybody calls me Steve. So my Twitter handle is at Steve Clapham, as in Clapham Junction. And my website is behindthebalancesheet.com and your listeners be very well uh, advised to sign up to the, the website because as I said we've got this resource fantastic library and loads of free material where you can look at the videos and 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 try and improve your your investing skills and I'm also on on LinkedIn and um I look forward to, to hearing from your from your listeners. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. We'll put links in the show notes. And uh, as I say, all the best. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Cheers. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor. 